0: passage that would reveal uh, something about my philosophy of ministry, uh, but also just a passage that has been very meaningful to me and my personal walk with the Lord. You can, if you have a Bible with you this morning, you can start making your way to 2 Corinthians. We'll spend most of our time in chapter 5. I'll give a little bit of background information. As I said, this passage has been influential on my ministry philosophy or how I would say ministry happens or how ministry should happen. So let me pause for a second and ask you just to think in your mind. If you were asked, how does ministry happen or how should it happen? What would you say? You don't need to answer out loud, but if you, had to, if you were put on the spot and needed to answer, how does ministry happen? What would you say? And we can't answer this question Uh, without clarifying a couple things, defining some words. um, When you think about what ministry is, and not only that, but who does the New Testament and Jesus task with the responsibility of doing ministry? I was talking with uh, Jeff about this earlier this week when we were at his house. Uh, Some verses should pop into your head when you think, who is responsible to do ministry? And they're in Ephesians 4. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read you a few verses, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. It says, and he, meaning Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, or you could say the pastors and the teachers. And what did he give those people to do? Why did Jesus give those people? Verse 12 says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building of the body of Christ. So Jesus gives people. He gives leaders to churches in order to equip the saints in order for them to do ministry. So it's not, it's not just the leaders doing ministry. It's the leaders who do equipping, and the saints and the everyday believers do the ministry. I know this probably isn't something new and life-changing for you. You've probably heard this before. But it's good to be reminded as we approach our text that all of us are in ministry together. If you claim to know Jesus as your Savior, if you're a member of Beaumont Baptist Church also, you cannot exclude yourself from the people who are in ministry. It's not just the pastors. It's not just the the missionaries that you support that are in ministry. According to God's word, it's all of us doing ministry together. So if we know that, then also we need to answer, what is the ministry? If we want to answer, how does ministry happen, not just who is responsible, what is the ministry? Is it is it the relief of the poor or education or humanitarian efforts? All these things are, are good and valuable for God's people to be involved in, but what does uh, the Bible say is our ministry? Jesus was pretty clear about what we should be most passionate about, what he wants his people to be involved in. And I'm not, I'm not going to unpack Uh, all of the Great Commission right now, but what Jesus told his disciples before he left the earth, the main command in that uh, Great Commission was that they need to be making disciples. And the people closest to Jesus understood that as their most important ministry after he left. Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit and gifts to accomplish that mission. And the people who knew Jesus best were in the disciple-making business right away. They understood the Great Commission to be the mission of their life. Like I said, I don't think this is something that I need to actually convince you of. I think, I think we understand this. At least we understand it in our heads. I think as a church, generally speaking, all of us would understand this. This church seems, from my perspective, to be growing and baptizing new believers, and that's not something that happens when people don't understand their responsibility to do ministry. And even when I open up your website... Uh, i don't know how when the most recent time you've done that is when you look on beaumont baptist church's website the thing that catches my eye right away in big letters it says to know christ and make him known probably a mission or vision statement of the church that makes a lot of sense and lines up with the great commission so we know at least in our heads that we're supposed to make disciples so with those clarifications of who is responsible to do ministry and that ministry is best defined as disciple-making, we're going to start looking towards 2 Corinthians to see how the Apostle Paul would answer the question, how does ministry happen? In the book of 2 Corinthians, just to give a little bit of background information before we get to our text, the Apostle Paul is fighting for the loyalty of a church that he loves. He was influential in starting this church and, and getting it going and discipling people who were there. But this church has had issues of unity in the past. This was not a healthy church at every point in its history. Paul is writing this letter, and many of those issues have sort of subsided. He's won over uh, most of them to be loyal to him, but it's not for sure that everybody there has, has turned the corner and is willing to follow Paul and follow Jesus. Not everybody is on his side, and the specifics of all the conflict isn't so important for today, but what you do need to know about the letter of 2 Corinthians is that throughout the letter, Paul is defending himself and defending his ministry from attacks. He's defending his apostleship, and as he does that, we get to hear Paul's philosophy of ministry. As he defends his ministry, we hear his philosophy of ministry. Our passage today is in chapter 5. And it comes on the tail end of this uh, articulation of Paul's confidence in God and how he believes ministry happens. So one last thing before we get to our passage. I know this is this kind of turning into a long introduction here. But as we approach 2 Corinthians 5, there's a few passages that uh, we can highlight that summarize little pieces of Paul's ministry philosophy. If you look in your Bibles at uh, chapter 3, start in verse 5 we see that Paul believes ministry happens as God enables us. Verse 5 says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Now this truth that God is the one who enables us to do ministry has been very encouraging to me, uh, both, like as my responsibility, both in my home and in my church, has grown. Responsibility in the home in terms of a growing family, but just also in terms of uh, more ministry responsibilities. I think we can all relate to feelings of inadequacy at times. I feel like God, why did you call me to do this? I feel like this is insurmountable for me. But the, these passages in Second Corinthians say Paul says that ministry happens as God enables us. He's the one who gives us the ability to accomplish ministry. God doesn't need us, but he uses us. Another little piece of Paul's ministry philosophy is in the end of chapter 3, verse 18. Let me read that verse for you. Verse 18 of chapter 3 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, this verse is maybe a little bit more complicated to understand when you're just jumping in and not really studying the context, but what I understand this verse to be saying is that ministry happens as God transforms us, or we might say as God sanctifies us. And as that happens, as we become more and more like Jesus, we're able to make others look more like Jesus as well. Ministry isn't something that you're on the outside and working with these other people and just trying to help them. It's Jesus doing a work in you, changing your life and living life with other people, pursuing Jesus together, walking with God and helping others Do the same. Ministry doesn't happen with someone top-down commanding all the pieces on the chessboard. Ministry happens as God transforms us and sanctifies us. He allows us to live life with others and play a part in transforming them. The last piece before we get to our passage today, chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, we see that ministry happens when we focus on the right things. Let me read those verses for you. Four, starting in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Suffering is a part of life, and it's a part of ministry. Paul was going through an intense period of suffering at this time, and it was affecting him and his emotions and possibly his ministry. And when we focus on the bad things that God allows to happen to us, when that becomes on our minds all the time, the first thing you you think about when you wake up and the last thing you think about when you go to bed, and when you're so focused on all the suffering that we go through, Then we're not focused on ministry, and we're not focused on the future that has been promised to us. These verses say that there's a future that our suffering is preparing us for, and it's described as an eternal weight of glory. But ministry happens when we focus on the right things, not on current suffering, but on future glory. And we're going to keep talking about the future as we begin in our passage today. Those last verses at the end of chapter four that we just read are the verses that precede the text I'm going to unpack for you in chapter five. Uh, many of you probably know that chapter divisions are not part of the original scriptures, not as if when Paul was writing this letter, he wrote, Okay, done with chapter four, I'm going to start a new thought in chapter five. Uh, these are things that were added later to help us just track scripture. Uh, so don't think of there being a big gap between what we just read and what we're about to read. Uh, We're going to start reading in chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And as I do that, I want you to remember uh, three words. It is the three words that, if you only remember one thing today, that's what I'd like you to remember. And those words are confidence enables ministry. This is our big idea today. Confidence enables ministry. So let me read the passage for you. And then we will discover exactly what the confidence is and exactly what the ministry is. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are away from, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body. And at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. Today, I'd like to break this passage into two halves for you, each half contributing to our big idea that confidence enables ministry. If you're taking notes, the first truth is from verses one through five. And it is the truth that we can be confident about our future. When we hear our future, sometimes we think eternal destination. And the Bible teaches that when you die, you will either spend eternity with God in heaven or separated from God in the lake of fire. But when I say the future today, I'm not talking necessarily just about eternal destination. I also mean our eternal state of being. Paul is writing to believers here. So when they die, they'll be with God in heaven. But Paul's not only writing about what location they'll be in, he's writing to believers so that they can understand the nature of the body that they will have after this physical body passes away. When When I read the first five verses of our passage, you probably noticed that Paul used several metaphors. Look at those verses again and notice all the words he used that seem like they're referring to something else. Words like tent and building, house, heavenly dwelling, uh, naked, unclothed, further clothed, swallowed up by life. And and once you realize that these metaphors are referring to a physical body, most of the time, the passage starts to make a little bit more sense. Let's look at that first verse again. Verse 1 says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed the tent referring to our current physical bodies we have a building from God a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens paul was a tent maker this is how he supported himself as he traveled so this is a natural illustration for him to use and he describes these temporary physical bodies that we inhabit as tents and the future eternal bodies that believers will inhabit he describes as a building okay and a building is far more substantial than a tent i think we all realize this Um, i've heard a lot about canadian winters uh, on our visit i've heard just just wonderful things everybody loves them Uh, they never ever get tired of the snow and cold and dark Uh, just sounds great Uh, everybody seems to love winter up here where my wife and i are from iowa uh... Not the same, but winter's not a walk in the park down there either. Uh, so we've all experienced cold, dark, long winters, and I think we'd all agree that if we had to experience that winter exposed to the elements, we would much rather be living in a building or in a house than in a tent. This is the difference between the current body that we inhabit and the way. Paul describes the future eternal bodies that we will inhabit, the difference between a house and a building. One is more substantial than the other. One is objectively better than the other. It will last longer than the other. It can do more. Think about Jesus' resurrection body. We're told that, in other places, that our body will be like his, and we know that his was physical. For one, it was visible. Spirits are invisible, right? We also, Thomas touched his wounds and Jesus ate fish. There's all kinds of clues that Jesus' resurrection body, not even clues, it's just obvious. He, he was resurrected to a physical body. And this passage is describing our future body as a house. And what I'm saying is that our resurrection bodies that are being promised in this passage are seem to be more physical and more real, more capable of enjoying God than the body that we have now. And this truth is placed to comfort us and to give us confidence that when this body expires, it's not the end. It's not the end of life. God has another glorified body for those who trust in his son and are saved by him. This isn't just generic confidence in God that will get us through suffering and enable us to do ministry. This is a specific truth, a specific promise about what is coming that we can all grab a hold of if we know Christ as our saviors and say, this is my promise. It's the truth that this body, the one that you're currently occupying, is not your eternal destination, but you will receive a permanent building from God, free from pain, no more Tears no more, sorrow or toil, but a perfect, glorified body that resembles our risen Savior. Now, how sure is Paul, and how confident can we be? How confident is Paul? The key word would be the word "know," the K N O W, not the not N O, the the phrase that I keep uh, finding myself telling my daughter increasingly as she gets older. But K N O W, No in verses one. And verse 6 also, he doesn't say that we think or we might or we're pretty sure. He says we know. He has assurance and confidence. And this is the confidence that we need in order to minister effectively and also to live godly lives. This is one of those truths that should provide relief and mark us off from the world. Those who trust Christ do not need to fear in the way that those who don't know Christ. Confidence that physical death is not the end should change a lot about the way we live and about the way we minister. When I live that way, I'm not trying to squeeze every experience out of this life and body that I can. When I know that there's another body coming, then I have a greater and a higher goal than temporary pleasure that this world and this body can offer when I truly believe that another physical resurrection body is coming, then I can think long-term with an eternal mindset because this is a promise about the future that we can have confidence in. And it's a very meaningful truth. And as we meditate on it, and as we grow into the confidence in the future that Paul is saying we should have, we also learn to express something else, something very different. Paul kind of changes gears here as we approach verse two and it seems that we learn to express uh, dissatisfaction with the way things are now in sin-cursed bodies and in a sin-cursed world listen to the desire that paul portrays in verses two through four this will be a theme throughout the passage he's longing for relief from dwelling in his temporary tent his sin-cursed body verses two through four say For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Paul wants his glorified, eternal body. He wants to be completely free From the effects of sin on his temporary tent, and instead be clothed in a glorified physical body. And we praise God for the transformation that awaits anyone who puts their faith in Christ. But in the meantime, our deteriorating, or maybe you could say our decaying bodies, our bodies that are decaying because of sin, they serve a purpose for us. They remind us of the far reaching effects of sin and how much we need a savior. It's easy to look around at everything in the world that goes wrong, look at our bodies and things that go wrong, look at the world and things that go wrong, and wonder, what is God doing? Like, is he really in control? Does he really love us? But the Bible teaches that all the disorder and all the pain is not God's design, but rather a result of sin, And that's the fault of all of us because we're all sinners. Everyone in this room is a sinner. And because of our sin, we deserve an eternity without God, an eternity of suffering. And that's why Jesus had to come. We ought to love Jesus. Beaumont Baptist Church ought to love Jesus because he's the one who died and rose again to save us from our sin and from ourselves and from our decaying, deteriorating bodies and from our dying world. He's the one who died and rose again. God pursued us. We weren't good. We weren't even neutral. We were actively rebelling against our creator when he came to die a sinner's death for us so that we could be forgiven, have a relationship with him. The salvation for Jesus is the only answer to the problem of sin, and that problem gets manifested in so many ways, the one that Paul seems to be highlighting is a deteriorating body. That's what Paul is drawing our attention towards, to remind us of the truth of how much we need a Savior. We all experience the effects of sin, even as believers, but that shouldn't cause us to complain, it should cause us to repent, repent, and if we've already repented, should cause us to praise God all over again for the gospel of Jesus who will transform our dying bodies one day, who will take care of the problem that started in the Garden of Eden when sin entered the world. But what does it look like? What is a healthy dissatisfaction with our bodies and with an imperfect world Look like. Because Paul could have taken this a couple different directions as he was writing. He could have said, In this tent I groan, longing to put on my heavenly dwelling, and until I get it, I'm not going to do anything useful for Christ. I'm just going to complain. But that's not what Paul says. That's not how he responds. You've already seen how he responded, and we'll unpack it more. Uh, But for now, it's safe to say that if all you ever do about sin and suffering, if your only response is complaining, then you're not responding well. That's not God's design or desire for you. It's also worth saying that the specific suffering that you experience as a result of sin, it can take many forms. For Paul, it, it was pain. He was tired of getting beaten and bruised for the cause of Christ, and it made him long for an eternity with Jesus in a perfect body. For some of us, though, it's not, it's not pain. It could, be, it could be a variety of things. Some struggle with uh, sickness and disease right, that has changed your body more than you could have thought possible. Or maybe it's sickness of disease of somebody that you love that's causing you to question how good things really are. Many, many struggle with aging. Some are self-conscious about uh, their height or their weight or a particular feature. Uh, as you can probably tell when I'm talking in front of people, my face will usually turn red and this is something that when i was especially in junior high used to really bother me i remember losing sleep when i knew i had a class presentation i know my cheeks are going to get rosy everyone's going to look at me something that used to really bother me about my physical body and because of that to this day i refuse to do public speaking always just never (laughs) never got over it (laughs) but obviously that's not true but it did used to really bother me and The point in saying this is not to pinpoint specific things that we don't like about ourselves, but to show you that we all recognize naturally that the world and our bodies are not as they should be. And if that drives you to complain, then you're moving in the wrong direction. But if you react like Paul in verse 4, if the effects of sin make you long for an eternity with Jesus, because Jesus is the one who makes things right, then you're moving towards greater fellowship and greater dependence on God. And that's a good place to be. That's moving in the right direction, away from complaining and towards dependence on Jesus. This passage is about confidence. How can we know that this is true? Look at verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing, this new glorified body, is God. And what has God done? It says he has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. How do we know that a glorified body is waiting for us? How can we have confidence like Paul? What gives us the confidence that enables ministry? Paul says it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. When you think about an engagement ring, think about guarantees, right What does an engagement ring symbolize? Normally, when a couple gets married, the the man will give his future bride a ring as a promise of what 's to come. The ring isn't uh, encapsulating everything that the marriage is, but it represents something that's going to be fulfilled in the future. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. When we accept Christ, He gives us the Holy Spirit. As a guarantee of what's coming in the future, we can have confidence that God will fulfill his promise because he's already begun fulfilling it. If I have the Holy Spirit, meaning if I can bring myself under the control of the Holy Spirit, if my life is characterized by submitting to the Holy Spirit, if I display the fruit of the spirit regularly in my life, if that's the general pattern, then that is some really positive evidence that I have truly been born again and that God has a glorified body waiting for me when this one expires or when he calls me home. I mentioned earlier that this isn't merely generic confidence in God that will get us through hard times. The truth is, that you can be confident in your future, is especially placed in this letter as Paul defends his ministry to show that it's what enabled Paul to endure suffering and mistreatment for the sake of the gospel. He was able to do that because he knew that this version of his physical body was temporary. And there's there's an eternal one coming that matters far more than this one. So if you'll allow me to speak to some different groups of people in this room, some different age groups. Let me talk, first of all, to the young people. I'm not going to put age brackets on this. I'll just let you decide. Young people, if you notice in yourself a tendency to be obsessed with image, how you look, is it possible that you're putting too much stock in this body and not enough in the future one? Is it possible that instead of setting your sights on the way you look or how others perceive you, you should instead set your sights on sanctification? There's a popular quote that I heard when I was young, and it took me a while to understand, that uh, youth is wasted on the young. Your young and strong bodies are not meant to be trophies, if I can put it this way, They're not meant to be pleasure machines. They're meant to be spent for the cause of Christ. There's a great temptation from the world, from our flesh, from Satan. There's a great temptation to live for today. And the world preaches its values to you far more often than the church gets to. But you'll spend far more time in an eternal state than you will on this sinful earth. So use your young, strong, healthy bodies to assist the church in its mission. Have confidence that another body is coming later if you know Christ. And use this one to please God now. I me shift to another age group. Couples, maybe parents, those who would describe themselves as middle age. Uh, maybe you can tell that your body isn't what it used to be. As you notice the beginning signs of aging on your bodies, you too should meditate on God's promises and ask, how can you spend the strength that you have left most wisely uh, to assist the church in fulfilling its mission? Maybe because of the way you've used your energy or spent yourself over the years, Uh, You've achieved a certain level of financial independence or, or greater levels of freedom at your job. Just like for the young people, there's a temptation from the world to use your excesses for yourself. And that temptation is strong. Can I challenge you also to use your excess for the cause of Christ and for the mission of the church? Give sacrificially of your strength, your time, and your money to what has eternal value. Have confidence that another body is coming if you know Christ and use this one to please God now. Last age group, maybe we'd call them senior saints or whoever wants to put themselves above middle age. You probably understand weakness and pain in your physical body more than any other group in this church. and Maybe it hurts to do the mundane, normal tasks that, you used to accomplish without a second thought. Maybe you're exhausted all the time and you can't sleep, and maybe it hurts just to pray. The poet John Milton, uh, when he was going blind, he wrote a poem lamenting the fact that he could no longer see and soon wouldn't be able to serve God in the way he wanted to anymore. Uh, But in that poem, he also said, God doesn't need either man's work or his own gifts. Your usefulness to God and your usefulness to your local church is not determined by what you can accomplish physically. Don't give up on the service that you can offer to God. Don't give up on building relationships and encouraging those you interact with. Don't give up on sharing the gospel with your family and friends. Uh, You also can accomplish beaumont baptist church's mission to know christ and make him known and i would say you're essential to that mission have confidence that another body is coming if you know christ and use this one to please god now all of us who know christ can be confident about the future that's the first truth and next in our passage paul transitions to the so what of our confidence Our second truth today, if you're taking notes, is from verses 6 through 10, and it's that we can please God by making disciples. Let me read those five verses for you. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Once again, the truth I've attached to this second half of verses is that we can please God by making disciples. And you may have noticed this verse, the, these verses don't explicitly mention anything about disciple-making or even evangelism, uh, you'll see the phrase, we make it our aim to please him in verse 9. But why is that disciple-making? Why am I saying that pleasing God equals disciple-making? Uh, we've talked about it a little bit, and momentarily I'll explain why I believe a big part of pleasing God in this passage is making disciples. But before we get to verse 9, let's talk about verses 6 through 8. Paul is continuing to express Uh, this confidence in the future that he has in verses 6 through 8, but he's also building towards a new idea. So look at verse 6. He starts out, So we are always of good courage. Once again, it's not that he thinks or hopes or wonders about what's coming. He says we're of good courage, and some translate that phrase as, therefore we are always confident. And then he continues in verse 6, We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. So not only does living with confidence require faith, because we haven't actually seen these eternal bodies with our own eyes, it requires faith, but it also requires a desire to be with Jesus. We've already unpacked how dissatisfaction with the world, how suffering is meant to increase our appetite for Jesus, Paul wanted more than anything to be with his Savior. It wasn't just being free from physical pain. That was certainly a part of it. But more than anything, he wanted to be with the one who saved him. Maybe you don't think about the end of your life very much, but try to imagine with me crossing from this life to the next. And the first thing you see is your Savior, Jesus, the one who died for you. Do you ever long for that day? the way Paul does in this passage? Do you desire it for the right reasons? Sometimes we get excited about heaven because there'll be no more pain or sorrow, but the reason it'll be so good is because Jesus is there and our sin is not there. It's taken care of. To be away from the body is to be at home with Jesus. That's what verse 8 says. It says, yes, we're of good courage and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Essentially, what Paul is saying is We would rather be dead because then we could be with Christ. And this isn't the only place in the Bible where Paul talks about this. You think Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain? It's better to be away from the body and at home with Jesus. This is how confident and excited Paul was for the afterlife. And there's an encouragement here for us, especially if you're afraid of death and suffering. To be away from the body is to be at home with Jesus and it's inconsistent to fear death when the God of life lives in you and has promised resurrection just like Jesus had. To remind you once again of our big idea today, confidence enables ministry. And as I mentioned earlier, if you know Christ, you're not able to exclude yourself from those who are in ministry. It's not just The pastors, it's not just the people getting paid to do ministry, they equip the saints for the work of ministry. All of us who know Christ are in ministry together, and we all share the mission from Jesus of disciple-making. We're all called to spiritual leadership, so keep that in mind as we continue through verse 9, and this is the confidence in the future that Paul has been unpacking for us, and it's intended to be confidence for a reason, for a specific purpose, And as I said it a minute ago, the purpose could be described as disciple-making. Verse 9, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Dead or alive, our goal is to please God. My claim today, we please God best by making disciples. And I'm not trying to be arbitrary by saying that this is referring to disciple-making. What I think we need to do is discover what was Paul trying to communicate One of the ways we do that is looking at a context, what comes before our passage, what comes after our passage. And in my introduction, I I talked about uh, what comes before our passage is Paul is defending his ministry and we hear his philosophy of ministry. We read verses that revealed Paul's belief that ministry happens as God enables us. Ministry happens as God transforms us. Ministry happens when we focus on the right things. That's what comes before our passage. And right after our passage that we're studying today, Paul says in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And he'll continue in that same paragraph in verse 18 All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That comes right after our passage today. And to me, the ministry of reconciliation sounds a lot like The Great Commission sounds a lot like relational disciple-making ministry. This is the way that Paul takes the truth of verses 1 through 10 and applies them to everyday life. I'm not trying to read this idea into the text. Paul is the one making this connection between pleasing God and disciple-making. Paul wants the church at Corinth, a church that has had issues of unity in the past, to realize and unite around disciple-making and pleasing God. This is what is most important, and it's a mission worth uniting around. He wants to motivate them, and he uses an upcoming event to do that. When you look at our final verse today, verse 10, it says, "'For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, "'so that each one may receive what is due "'for what he has done in the body, "'whether good or evil.'" The judgment seat of Christ is not something that uh, we talk, at least in churches I've been a part of, it's not something that comes up super often, and part of the reason for that is it's not in very many passages of scripture, Uh, but uh, what the judgment seat of Christ is is all about is it doesn't have anything to do with salvation, but it's a, a testing of works that believers perform. Our sins are completely paid for in Christ but we know that even as people who love God and want to live for him, we still have the capacity to sin. We still have the capacity to be wasteful with the new life he's given for us, given to us. And uh, we're all going to stand before God and give an account for how we've spent our lives. It may be helpful to think of the judgment seat of Christ as an award ceremony. Or when you think of a, a ceremony where awards are given out, it's not totally accurate to say, that there are winners and losers at an award ceremony, right? There, there's different groups of people. Maybe there's some people who would get several awards, they, whatever the event is. They've done really well in lots of areas, and they get many awards. There's some people who just get one award. Uh, there's some people, probably a lot of people, who are not going to get any awards or any recognition at all, right? But it wouldn't be fair to say that those people who didn't get any awards are, are losers, Uh, It's not a winners and losers thing. But it is possible that when you don't get any awards at an award ceremony, that you realize maybe your priorities weren't right. Maybe you weren't focused on the right thing. Paul includes this sentence on the judgment seat of Christ to motivate the church at Corinth, but also to motivate us so that we will want to make it our aim to please him. Because if there is... In reality, an award ceremony that comes after this life where the God of the universe, the God who created everything and ordained salvation, the author of, of the gospel message, uh, he, the one who created all things is giving out awards. Like, I, I want one of those awards. I want as many as I can get, don't you? I, and I want Paul to keep writing, keep talking, Paul, tell me. How can I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and be awarded for living this life well? And it's right at that point in the letter where Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Right after talking about the judgment seat of Christ, we please God by persuading others. We please God by making disciples. Paul wants to motivate us because we have a message, the message of reconciliation the message that changes lives we have the gospel we have the truth about jesus who came to die and save people from their sins so so what are we going to do about it are we going to persuade others are we going to prioritize ministering at our church are we going to carefully design our lives so that we have time for relationships to build relationships that can bear the weight of gospel truth? Are your priorities different because of what Jesus did for you? Do, you? do you want to share him with others? We can please God by making disciples and you're free to do that because you don't have to be afraid of missing out on anything in this life because God has another body waiting for you in eternity. Trust the promises of God about this life and about the next one. Confidence in those promises will enable great ministry, ministry that God wants you to accomplish, not just your pastor, the ministry of disciple-making and pleasing him. God is the one who gives the fruit, but we need to be faithful and motivated to accomplish the work that he's given us to do until he returns. Maddie and I have really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit this week. I hope our interactions were helpful for you. Uh, We're going to be praying with uh, an open hand for the next couple weeks and uh, trying to discover what the Lord's will is. And no matter what happens today or two weeks from today, uh, we're thankful for this opportunity to spend some time with you. Let's all pray together and then we'll transition to the next part of the service.